Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, we are continuing a, a sermon series this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and so our scripture passage is in Mark chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there in your Bible, there are Bibles in front of you. You can grab one of those as well, but if not, it's printed for you in our worship folder. It's on the screen behind me as well, and if you're at home, it should be on your screen. So there's no reason, no excuse to not get your eyes on the text as we read it together, beginning in verse 35. We're just going to pick up right where we left off last week and finish out this 12th chapter of Mark's gospel. And so let's read together, beginning in verse 35, about another, another series of encounters that Jesus has uh, that are instructive for us. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. May we believe all that it teaches, obey all it commands, trust in all it promises, and, and revere all that it reveals, would you say, the grass withers. Flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me ask let me ask a question as we get started this morning. Who's the most generous, unselfish person that you know? Think about that. In your life, who is the most generous person that you've come across? Isn't it a beautiful thing? Have you ever benefited from somebody who's a really generous person? And what an amazing thing that is if you have somebody like that in your life. But have you ever asked, what makes a person like that? you ever wondered that? Like, what makes a person live like that? That's a pretty, I mean, it's an amazing thing. And what I want to say this morning and what we'll see in this text, I think, is that Christianity has unique emotional and spiritual resources built in to make people who believe into that kind of person, unique emotional spiritual resources for becoming a sacrificially generous person. That is the theme of this section of Mark's gospel. Now, in the larger context, and we've been walking through this, so, that, so if you've been here over a number of weeks, you should, you should see that we've learned that the goal of the spiritual life is love, to be loved by God and to love him with all of our whole self, our whole self, and then to have that love overflow towards others. But loving and giving are two inseparable actions. They're two parts of the same thing. Loving and giving are synonyms, in fact. And so you famous... You know, well-known passage of Scripture, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He what? If you can finish it, that He He gave He gave His only Son. Ephesians five two says, Paul writes, "Walk in love as as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us." And so, the fruit of love, according to the Scriptures, is generosity, sacrificial generosity. As Christ loved us, Paul says there, cross-shaped generosity. And so that really is 
the theme of this text too, is if we are people who claim to love God and to be loved by him and to have that love so stirring in our hearts that it's overflowing in love towards other people, then we will be people more and more who are, who when somebody asks that question, who's the most generous, unselfish person you know, that people would think of us. But in this text, we see really three things. We see first the lack of that sacrificial generosity that I'm describing in the scribes and Jesus's characterization of them. And that begins in uh, verse, well, I got to turn my Bible back to the right page, verse 38. And then we see the extent of the sacrificial generosity that we're called to here. And that is the characterization of the woman that begins in verse 41 and goes through verse 44. And then lastly, we'll skip back up to the beginning of the passage where Jesus began to teach, and we see the power for sacrificial generosity in the Savior, great David's greater son. And so the lack of and the extent of and the power for the kind of generosity that we see here in this text, which is the fruit of love for God and being loved by him. Let's walk through the text together. First, let's start with the scribes. And the scribes are really an example, an illustration of the lack of sacrificial generosity because you see the effect of Jesus' characterization of the scribes and then the story of the widow's might side by side the way they are is providing a contrast. If the woman is an example of sacrificial generosity and the extent of it, then the scribes are an example of the opposite of selfishness or whatever word you want to use to describe that. Now, this is not stated directly, but this is how we should understand Mark's intent. The scribes were law experts. They had degrees in theology. Their job was to enforce the, the biblical law in religion and civics and politics. And that came with a certain prestige. They were well-respected, well-thought-of members of the community. They had a high social standing. And so listen with that in mind again to Jesus' characterization in verses 38 and 39, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes like greetings in the marketplaces and have their, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. They were fundamentally selfish. They were self-conscious. They were self-seeking, self-exalting. That word translate, that word translated like, they like to walk around. It's, it's really a stronger word than that. It means to be resolved or determined. Their purpose, their desire, their goal their intent was to be seen, to be put on display. They were exhibitionists. Everything they did, even the clothes they wore, it was all strategically designed to get attention. They were obsessively image-driven. They sought places of honor. If they had Instagram back in those days, they would have taken 75 Instagram pictures to get the exact right one to put on the page for people to see. They craved respect in admiration from the crowds. And it's interesting, verse 38, that Jesus says, beware. He says, this is dangerous. What you see in these men, be careful that it doesn't start to happen to you too. It's actually not the first time in Mark. In Mark 8, he said, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out. Don't be duped by these religious folks. See for what, for what it really is. Beware. Don't let it happen to you because it can. And so we learn that there is a kind of religion where you're good but you're good in a really bad way you get better and better as you go but as you go you also become proud you start being good to show off and to exalt yourself now why is this such a problem well if you notice again maybe not explicitly stated but I think 
at least implied here in the text, is that this whole approach to life and particularly this approach to religion is fundamentally selfish. It is me-centered, not God-centered, not other-centered. It's not generous. Jesus said they like to dress up and walk, a, walk the red carpet and smile for the cameras, but at the same time, verse 40, look there, they were the people who also devoured widows' houses. In other words, they failed to show care and generosity to the most needy and vulnerable. It's worse. Actually, they advantaged themselves at the expense of widows and orphans and so forth. And throughout the Bible, God has some strong things to say to people who act this way. Especially when they use religion to do it. And here Jesus said, verse 40, that these people who put on a show, who do everything for the public spectacle... And yet, behind the scenes, they're fundamentally not generous towards the most vulnerable and needy people in the community. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. Do you see that? We might say there's a special place in hell. Dante put religious hypocrites in the eighth circle of hell in his inferno. If you're not familiar with the book, there are only nine circles. And Judas was in the ninth, by the way. I mean, just, just as a trivia for Jeopardy someday or something. The scribes were hypocrites. Their religion, Jesus said, was a pretense. It was a mask. It was a costume that hid the truth. And man sees only with outward appearances, but God sees all the way through all of our disguises. We stand naked and exposed before his x-ray vision, and he very clearly is not he's not impressed. Now, what's fascinating is this is a familiar characterization. Most representations of Christians in popular books and movies for, I don't even know, the last 50 years or so probably, but increasingly so today, contain some element of this hypocrisy. I, I just thought of some examples, and I could think of so many. But some of the most poignant for me, if, you, if you're familiar with Barbara Kingsolver's Poisonwood Bible, Nathan Price is a Baptist missionary in that book in Central Africa, and he was driven by the overwhelming guilt that he felt as the only member of his regiment to escape the Bataan death march in World War II. And he is certain that God thinks that he's a coward, and so he's determined to prove that he's committed and brave, but without giving any spoilers away, in the process he neglects and he endangers his wife and his four daughters as they go to serve in the, the Af that African nation. He just treats them horribly, and he exposes them to all kinds of unnecessary danger and harm because, as you read the book, it's very clear, it's just all about him. I'm watching, don't judge me, 1923 right now, which is a Yellowstone, or Yellowstone origin story, uh, and they're really great. Uh, I like the other one as well, but um, it's it's but it's it's hard to watch because it is a bunch of really bad people, really bad people. But in that show about a bunch of really bad people, the worst people are the Catholic priests and the nuns running a school for the Native American girls on the res reservation that do all kinds of unspeakable, awful, terrible things to those children in the name of God. So don't think that this is not a familiar trope that our culture, a familiar story that our culture is telling. This is what the world believes to be true of us, that we are like these people. But how does it happen? I mean, that's the question, right? How, 
how does how does this how does this happen? I mean, Jesus says, "Beware." So, how do we beware? How do we make sure that what we find in these men here don't doesn't happen to us as well? Michael Reeves has a new book. I tend to read everything that he writes, and I would encourage you to do as well. But it's called Evangelical Pharisees, and his answer is this: He says it's not a moral problem; it's a theological problem. They lacked what he calls gospel integrity, not orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is essential, but it is not the same thing as gospel integrity, which he, by which he means the alignment of the head with the heart, theology and life, the way that what we believe gets integrated in the way that we behave and treat other people. Put simply, the scribes believed in salvation by works. That's an, that's an oversimplification, but for the sake of time, we need to just say it that way. Not salvation by grace. Their leaven which we were to be careful about, was the leaven of legalism. Sinclair Ferguson said that the case, that he's made the case that the root of all sin is, in fact, legalism, that before the woman ate the forbidden fruit in the garden, she had already begun to believe wrongly about God. God in her heart had become he whose favor must be earned, and that that is the lie that has entered the bloodstream of the human race, and it has come down to you and me, and it causes us to mistrust God's heart to lose sight of his love and his grace for us, and thus to revert to trying to earn God's love and favor through moral effort and achievement. And that is a powerful motivation for obedience. But pride does not stop at being good. It has to be better than, which means becoming increasingly contemptuous of others. And though it is a powerful motivator, for obedience, it is a terrible motivator for sacrificial love and generosity. Thus the problem. Now, second, if that is the lack and the danger, the warning here, there's also a positive example, and we see the extent of sacrificial generosity in Jesus' characterization of the woman. And as I've said, Mark has grouped this material together intentionally, so the woman here stands right on the heels of what Jesus has to say about the scribes. Mark has compiled the material to put them side by side as a contrast. And so let's set the stage. Here, beginning in verse 41, all that is taking place here is happening in the temple. The temple was the repository for the financial gifts of God's people, gifts to God and to God's work. So in the temple, there were shofar, which was a long horn. There were these horn shaped offering boxes and when the worshipers came into the temple they would bring their offerings with them and that's what's happening here that's what's taking place and what we see is that the wealthy come and they're bringing their offerings bundles of cash that they're pulling out and dropping in those offering boxes and then there's this poor widow and it says that she put in two small copper coins the word is lepta refers to it was a coin it was the smallest denomination of coin. It, 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 we're told here it was worth less than a penny. And she put these, these in, and yet Jesus said, he used this to make a teaching point. He calls his disciples to him, and he, and he begins to teach them. He says, even though the amount that she gave was the smallest, her sacrifice was the greatest. Even though she gave less, what he says is she actually gave more. And it's an important lesson Jesus means to teach them and to teach us, and it's this, that the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost of the giver. That really the issue in our, in our generosity, not just financially, but in all the other parts of our lives, the issue is not 
the amount that we give, but the cost of what we give to the one who gives. Everyone else gave out of their abundance, but it says she gave out of her poverty. She put in, look at verse 44, this is important, the wording here. She put in everything she had, all she had to live on, her whole life. That's what that means. She laid down her whole life, everything she had, her bios, that's the word there, literally. It's not, she wasn't just giving her money, she was, she gave her life away. She laid down her entire life in this gift. At least that's how Jesus interprets her offering. Now, most people typically give out of their margin. They give a percentage. It's in the budget. They make sure God gets his share. I mean, if you've been around the church for a while, you know there's that whole part about locusts devouring your life. If you don't tithe, you want to avoid that. So you give to make sure you keep God on your good side because you don't want him to take away everything else. But after we give, our life has really not changed all that much. We're not eating any less. We're not traveling any less. We're not going without in any significant ways. But this woman, she gave up what little control she had of her life. When the rest of us give, we only give what we can afford to give without losing any control. She didn't just give her money. She gave her bios. She gave her everything. And this, according to Jesus, is the model. But don't make this about money. The lesson is not that God wants all your money. It's worse than that. <laughs> he wants all your life. He wants everything. The great commandment is love God with your whole heart. Remember, with your whole mind, with your whole soul, with your whole strength. And the widow here, because remember, that verse is just a little bit further back in this chapter. The widow here is, for Mark, an example or an illustration of that kind of love for God. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says this way, he says, Offer yourself your whole life as a living sacrifice to God. And it's this same temple imagery of the burnt offering. And with a burnt offering, the whole thing was put on the altar. With other offerings, parts and pieces were kept back for the priests. And there were certain parts that were withheld for people to eat and take home and, and give to their family. But with the, whole, with the burnt offering, nothing was kept back. The whole thing was put on the altar. And the whole thing was burned up as a sacrifice to the Lord. And so... Paul is saying this is the way that we should approach our lives with God, that we, every part of our person, mind, body, and soul, every part of our lives, our solitude, our family time, work, recreation, we give it all to God. We don't hold anything back. And he says, it's fascinating there in Romans 12, he says, it's your reasonable worship. That word means logical. It's logical. And here, if Christianity is true... It's too big a truth for a small response. And if Christianity is grace, if God does everything and you gain everything, then the only reasonable response is to be willing to do anything, to lay your whole life down. That's the extent, nothing left, nothing less, nothing less. It's just what Jesus says over and over again. In Luke chapter 14, for example, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That cannot, he says. It's not a matter of permission cannot that word is dynamite and christianity true christianity is spiritual dynamite a christian a true christian has spiritual powers surging in them like an electrical current but only when they are willing to give it all away the scribes were good they were religious but they did it for the social and emotional kickbacks they got. They did it for themselves. Their religion was profoundly selfish. But this widow, she had nothing to gain. She was sacrificially 
generous. And so the lesson is this, religion might create what you see in the scribes, but Christianity, and only Christianity can and should produce what you see in the widow, as long as it's the real thing. People who joyfully lay down their whole lives in love and gratitude for all that God is and does, this is, this is why you should be a Christian. If you're here and you're not, you're not sure what you believe, this is why you should be a Christian. In a time when all truth claims are looked at with deep suspicion, it matters what truth you're claiming. And it matters what kind of people that truth creates. Our world is not impressed with people who act like scribes. The widow, however, she is an apologetic for Christianity. I mean, what set of beliefs and values and principles would make someone act like that? That's the question, right? And I, just to be really vulnerable for a moment, this is my crisis of faith. Not just in my own, but, but as a pastor, it's my crisis of faith that the church today, particularly in the West, resembles the scribes here more than it does the widow. Or maybe it's just the circles I run in. Or, to be honest, maybe it's just me. I don't know. But I've had a hard time reading through Acts this time because I hardly recognize the church we've been reading about in Acts and the churches I know. Even in our church sometimes. I mean, Acts, it says that the people were devoted they were committed, right? They were, they were all in. The, the gospel awed them. They, were, they had these glad and generous hearts that were just supernaturally exuding love and grace and generosity to everybody they met. And there was nothing casual. There was nothing flippant about those early Christians. They were, like I said, they were all in. And I just wonder, how do we recover that? And I suppose the answer, and it's a cheap answer, and it's a scary answer, I guess, but I mean, I suppose the answer is revival. But as a beginning, as a beginning, let's look at the Savior. Let's look at the part where Jesus talks about himself beginning in verse 35 and through verse 37. And there we do see the power for the kind of sacrificial generosity. If you notice those verses... Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. I, I did not know this until this week's studying this, but Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's interesting. And Jesus' point in quoting from Psalm 110 there is fairly straightforward. If you would just allow me for the sake of time to summarize it, his argument goes like this. If Messiah was to be merely David's physical descendant, how could David call him Lord? That doesn't make sense. The Jews were expecting a son of David, a king, who would take them back to the good old days when they were on top. But David called him Lord, so there must be more to it than that. That's Jesus' basic argument. But, of course, the point he's making is this, that he is, in fact, the son of David, from the house of David. But also, as we know, he is the son of God, the divine person. He is David's greater son. He is David's son, but also his Lord. And he came not merely to rule, but to rescue us from the real enemies, sin and death, by reconciling us to God through his own suffering. And that hollowed out part of the scribe's religion, where there should have been sacrificial, supernatural love and generosity, but there was profound selfishness and self-regard. Instead, there was a lack of joyful wonder. That's what was missing. This lack of being awed by the gospel truth. These verses are, as, a part, as I've said, a part of a larger section where Jesus is debating all the different lobbying groups within Israel. So the Pharisees come, and then the Sadducees, and now the scribes. And he, if you read it, he wipes the floor with all of them. All of them. And the crowds that were watching as this interchange is going on, and again, here it's the last 
week of Jesus' life, and he's here in Jerusalem on his way to the cross. The crowds are there, and they're gathering around. They're watching these showdowns happen, and they have two different reactions. If you go all the way back to verse 17 in chapter 12, and if you have a Bible, you can flip back there. It says they marveled at him. And so they watched Jesus interact with all these different groups, and they, it was just, they were full of amazement. They were full of wonder. They couldn't, they, just, they couldn't make sense of this man and his wisdom and his power and his authority and the way he interacted with all of these really, really smart, important people. He just towered over them, and they, they were just amazed. But then in verse 37, and that's a part of this text, as he begins to teach here about David and David's son, who's actually his Lord, it says the great throng heard him gladly. They heard him gladly. You see that? And if you want to know what the scribes did not have that the widow did, this is it. That's it. And it's so interesting. That adverb, I hope it's an adverb, or the English teachers can tell me later if it's not. The word gladly is a word, heideos, from which we derive our word hedonism. And hedonism is the philosophy that says the highest good, the moral imperative, is to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And that's interesting that these people, they, they hear Jesus and they recognize what Jesus is saying as a source of great happiness and joy. C.S. Lewis so vividly pointed out, it is not that our desire for pleasures, our desires for pleasure are too weak, are too strong, excuse me, they are actually too weak. And in that very, very vivid illustrative section of his writing, he says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is offered by holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. We are like the little children in the cul-de-sacs in Central Florida after a big rainstorm because we have never been to and we can't imagine what it's like on Anna Maria Island. We're far too easily pleased. Paul in Acts chapter 20 quotes Jesus saying, it's better to give than to receive. Literally, what that phrase means is there is more happiness, there is more joy, there is more blessing in giving than receiving. You should live sacrificially you should live a generous life, not a selfish life, in the pursuit of joy. That's what we're being taught here. But C.S. Lewis is right. We are half-hearted creatures. That's our problem, wasting our time with lesser joys. And it's why there's so little resemblance, I think, between us and that first generation of Christians in Acts. But by reinterpreting Psalm 110, Jesus is claiming that there is something better. There's something better than merely having a God who will fix all your problems and grant all your wishes and give you a happy life. That's what the Jews wanted. And let's be honest. Us too. But what if God is actually offering something different, something better? I mean, you might honestly say, what could be better than that? Well, what if that, what if having a God who fixes all your problems and grants all your wishes and gives you a happy life, what if that is the mud pies in, mud pies in the slum? What could be better? What about the holiday at the sea, the real joy, the kind of joy that can cause you to lose your hunger for all the lesser joys, the joy of knowing that the one who made you loves you in being freed in your heart against all the things that work against it to love him in return. Why did the great throngs hear with such gladness? Why did they respond with such joy? They understood what Jesus was saying, that you can know God, and this is what God is like. He loves you, and his love is better than life, and it's a miracle, and they were overwhelmed. 
And when you're overwhelmed, you respond in big ways. See, the power for sacrificial generosity is to see and know and cherish God's generosity to you. How did Paul put it in that verse we read a minute ago? Jesus was rich, and he made himself poor to make you spiritually rich. See, the widow, she laid down her whole life. Not just her, not she, everything she had her whole life. And where's the motivation and the strength to do that come from? It comes from only this, from seeing Jesus Christ laying down his whole life for you on the cross. The uncreated one, subjecting himself to death so that you might not die because of your sins, but live eternally instead. The king, stripping himself of his royal robes and hanging naked for all to see, shamed in front of the whole world so that you might be clothed in his perfection. And if you're new to Christianity, real Christianity, not the religion of the scribes that passes for Christianity, but the real thing, this is what we mean by the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God loves us and he gives to us in Jesus. He loves us, and because he loves us, he gives to us in Jesus. There are a million mercies in today. Can I, listen, can I get something from y'all on that? There are a million mercies in today. A million mercies in today. Like, and guess what? You're going to wake up into a day tomorrow, and guess what there's going to be then? A million more mercies. And the day after that, add that up. What's that amount to? You're a billionaire in the currency of mercies. Everything is grace. Everything is grace. A million mercies, all of it is grace. Everything is grace, and that's why he deserves her everything. Now, here's what is so infuriating about doing what I do. I, I can't convince you of that. The Spirit has to. I hate that part of my job. So I don't know where to begin except to say this. Here's what I do think we can do. As we ask and we wait for the Spirit to do that work in us, we can work to replace the wrong ideas about God that we live with with the right ones. We can imagine the kind of life giving him everything that his grace to us in Jesus is worthy of. We can imagine that. We can think about that. Teenagers, think, teenagers, think about what it would be to give your whole life to him. We don't call kids to full-time pastoral ministry anymore why not he's worthy he's worthy of you giving everything and all all the parts of your life so you can imagine the kind of life of giving him everything that he is worthy of and then i think you can pray with the hymn writer to the degree that you can can vibe and, and jive with what he says you can make it your prayer too where he says take my life let it be consecrated lord to thee take my silver and my gold not a might with i would hold take my will Make it thine, it shall no longer be mine. Take my heart, it is thy own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. Amen. Pray with me, if you would, while we come to the Lord's table. So, Father, as we prepare to come to this meal, where we see with even greater clarity, we see in technicolor the great love for you have for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, you, the one who laid down your life, your body broken and your blood shed for us, where you gave your everything, how else might we respond except to give you our everything? And yet we confess the ways that we withhold ourselves from you, where we are content with lesser joys. Would you shake our hearts loose of all of those wrong ideas that we live with and open us, open us to the possibility of loving you by the power of your love for us? 
And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. It's quite a, a, uh, a sticky place to be, and even in singing the words of that song, because, again, if Christianity is gospel, then that means that every, every um, push forward we make is not through effort. It's actually through wonder. Like, it's not through effort and we say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, oh, this time I'm going to, I really mean it, I'm going to do it. It's through the wonder, it's through the increasing wonder of seeing all that God has done for us in Jesus. And that wonder is something that is a grace itself, that the Spirit must put upon our hearts. And so, oh, here we are before the Lord saying, we can't even produce the thing that we need to actually do the thing you've called us to do. We're completely dependent upon him for a work of grace in our own hearts. But here's the good news that no matter how much you stumble this week, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, then this benediction reminds you that, uh, that his face is already turned towards you and that no matter how imperfectly you might do this week and whatever he calls you to, there's no need to worry because in Jesus, he's won, he, Jesus has won his heart for you and now his heart goes with you in all that you do. So receive this word of benediction and rest in it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.